Welcome to the Small Hours Podcast. My name is Al Gavada. Thank you very much for joining us. It is episode number 14, and uh, today I'm flying solo, man, like a dodo bird that went extinct because he just hung around solo. That's pretty much what I'm doing this week. Brother Joe is not around. No one else is around, so it's just you and me, and let's do it up and kick it off with some news from Box Office Mojo. The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 topped the Thanksgiving weekend box office, holding off all newcomers, including the latest from Pixar, The Good Dinosaur. The weekend doesn't end with Katniss Everdeen's repeat effort, however, as Warner Brothers finally has something to brag about once again with the impressive opening of Creed, while Fox's Victor Frankenstein becomes one of the worst wide-release openings of all time. Beginning at the top, Mockingjay Part 2 scored an estimated $51.6 million for the three-day weekend, signifying only a 49.7% drop. Should these estimates hold, Part 2 will be the only film in the Hunger Games franchise to drop less than 50% in its second weekend, so that looks good for them. The film is still playing well behind all its predecessors, but it's clearly a massive hit for Lionsgate, as it has now crossed $440 million worldwide. Coming in in second place is Pixar's The Good Dinosaur, a story that will be interesting to see play out in the media. On one hand, it scored the fourth highest Thanksgiving weekend, three-day and five-day opening of all time, with an estimated $39.19 million and $55.5 million, respectively. On the other hand, those interested in the Pixar brand will be quick to note The Good Dinosaur's three-day signifies the worst opening for a Pixar film since Toy Story back in 1995, believe it or not, 20 years ago. Obviously, the Wednesday opening played a role in that number being a little softer, but even if you compare the $55.5 million five-day to previous Pixar three-day openings, it ranks no higher than 12th. We're talking about $5 million behind the $60.1 million cars made back in 2006. History aside, the A Cinema score is a good sign for the pick, which doesn't have any new competition until Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip, arrives on December 18th, but by that time, all the talk will be about Star Wars, The Force Awakens anyway. Coming in third is the strong performance of Creed, starring Michael B. Jordan, Sylvester Stallone, and Tessa Thompson, a co-production between Warner Brothers and MGM, the film took in an estimated $30.1 million, the largest in the Rocky franchise, not adjusted for inflation, for the three-day, and an impressive $42.6 million since opening on Wednesday. Glowing reviews from critics were met with a loving A Cinema score from opening day audiences. Along with excellent day-to-day holds, there's a strong case to be made for Creed topping $100 million over the course of its domestic run. I've already been told to go check it out, so chances are you have too. Coming in fourth, Spectre enjoyed a great Thanksgiving hold, bringing in an estimated $12.8 million. The 14.9% drop is the second best Thanksgiving drop when compared to the previous three Bond films, as its domestic cube now sits at $176 million and just shy of $750 million globally. The worst news of the weekend is the awful performance for Fox's genre feature, Victor Frankenstein, because nothing really says Thanksgiving like Victor Frankenstein. Opening in 2,797 theaters, the film only managed an estimated $2.35 million for the three-day and $3.4 million since opening on Wednesday. The three-day opening will be recorded as the worst opening for a film in 2,500-plus theaters, but that comes with an asterisk considering it was a Wednesday opener. Nevertheless, the C Cinema score suggests this might be the last time we hear about this one domestically. I wouldn't be surprised if it's pulled after two weeks like some other films uh, have had done to them recently. Overseas, it did manage a decent $10 million from 24 markets, Russia being the strongest one where it earned $2 million. Next weekend, it adds 15 more markets, including 
the UK. Fox's weekend story, however, doesn't end there. The Martian brought its international cube to $326 million as it hit China theaters this weekend, where it made an estimated $50 million. By comparison, the film's five-day opening in China is 139% of Gravity's six-day opening and 158% of Interstellar's five-day opening. The Martian is now the ninth largest worldwide release of 2015 with $545.1 million, looking to pass 50 Shades of Grey soon enough. I just recently saw 50 Shades of Grey, wasn't impressed. News from Slash Film. Last week's Captain America Civil War trailer was our first good look at the movie, but it's really just a first drop in what's sure to be a flood of marketing material. Today, which is uh, Wednesday, we have another new look at the Marvel Superhero Showdown in the form of an Entertainment Weekly cover featuring Captain America, Iron Man, and the mysterious Black Panther. It either could be Chadwick Bowman or just a computer-generated image of him, but he's on the cover. EW promises there's much more where that came from, so you can be sure we'll be keeping an eye out for everything that's going to be coming out. It's no secret that the film pits Captain America against his fellow Avenger, Iron Man. That's literally the premise of the story. But it should be interesting to see how Black Panther figures into the conflict. Both parties have reason to want him on their side, but he seems to be above it all on the cover, offering nothing but a little meow. <laughs> in an interview this summer, Marvel head honcho uh, Kevin Feige explained why they decided to get Black Panther involved. Quote, the reason we introduced him in Civil War is because we needed a third party. We needed Fresh Eyes who wasn't embedded with the Avengers and who has a very different point of view than either Tony or Steve. We said, we need somebody like Black Panther. Well, why don't we just use Black Panther? That's how it went in the development process. Based on the materials we've seen so far, it sure looks like Black Panther winds up declaring himself Team Iron Man. But hey, maybe he has a change of heart or something. Or maybe Black Panther and Bucky are actually BFFs, and that's just how they show their affection for one another when they're beating on each other. That sense of uncertainty is clearly what Civil War is going for. Evans explained in a quote accompanying the EW cover, In most movies, there's no question who we should be siding with. We all agree Nazis are bad, aliens from space are bad, but this movie is the first time where you really have two points of view. It becomes a question of morality, and I don't think Cap has ever been so uncertain with what right and wrong is. It should be interesting to see how Captain in America, Civil War navigates gray areas. The Marvel movies have all pitted good against evil. They are superhero movies after all. The closest the MCU movies have ever gotten to moral ambiguity is probably Captain America the Winter Soldier. Maybe they were setting us up for this one. And even then, it quickly became apparent that Cap, as usual, was on the side of angels, and that the other side, far from being well-meaning but misguided, was secretly run by the unequivocally evil Hydra. It's worth noting, too, that Captain America Civil War does seem to have one clear villain in Baron Zemo, played by Daniel Bruhl. The comic version of the character is somewhat morally ambiguous, as far as Marvel supervillains go, but since he didn't make so much as an appearance in the trailer, we've yet to see how the movie version of him stacks up, and maybe he won't show up until the second uh, movie in this particular tale. We'll see. We'll find out as uh, time goes by. News from Cinema Blend. While Spectre has a possibility of being Craig's last time playing 007, one of the producers isn't going to let him get away so easily. In a recent interview, Bond producer Barbara Broccoli stated her plans in moving the franchise forward, specifically regarding the actor who will be playing James Bond. 
In spring, we start again. I hope we can continue with Daniel. I love him. Obviously, not just me, but also the audience. I will try my best to keep him on. That's what she said. Ms. Broccoli is not messing around. While Daniel Craig has made a few statements stating his apparent uh, exhaustion from leading the last few James Bond movies, it seems that the verdict is still rather up in the air. And with Broccoli clearly understanding the fans' reactions to Craig as Bond, she will surely do whatever it takes to continue making the Bond films so successful. From IndieWire.com, IMDb has measured its daily rankings to share its most popular films and TV shows of 2015. Suffice it to say, these won't all be awards contenders, although many will contend for tech awards, and some are on many people's top 10 best lists, uh, especially as we get uh, near the end of the year. So as you compile your personal 10 best lists of the year, which are on yours? Here are the IMDb 10 most popular lists, starting off with the top 10 TV shows, consistently ranked the highest on the weekly IMDb most popular TV chart in 2015. Coming in at number 10, The Flash. Number 9, True Detective. Number 8, Fear the Walking Dead, the first out of this list that I actually watched. Orange is a New Black. Coming in at number 7. I also saw that one. Number 6, I have not. American Horror Story. Number 5, Narcos. That one I haven't seen either. Number 4, Daredevil. Thumbs up for me. I really like that one. Number 3, Arrow, which uh, I've heard good things about. Haven't had a chance to check out or it really hasn't piqued my interest. Top 2, of course, I've seen. The Walking Dead. And number 1, The Game of Thrones, which we are awaiting, especially after we saw that poster with Jon Snow on it uh, announcing the April return of the TV series. The top 10 movies of 2015 tabulated from user ratings during 2015 for films released in 2015 and then ranked based similarly to the IMDb top 250 movies. Coming in at number 10, Avengers Age of Ultron. And before I continue, before I continue the uh, rest of this top 10 movies of 2015, if you're anything like me, you're going to see a couple of these. Uh, Are you going to hear a couple of these that are in the top 10 and go, what? And and perhaps you'll have a, a little uh, scratching in the back of your brain going, there's got to be other movies that uh, should have ranked higher than this. One notable exception is something like Spectre. It's not in the, uh, uh, the top 10 uh, in here. So uh, let's continue with the list and see how many of them would actually be in your top 10 compared to this list. In at number nine, Ant-Man. Now, Ant-Man, I liked, but it wasn't like a a really meaty movie. It just kind of seemed like the cotton candy of Marvel Cinematic Universe movies to me or something. Uh, I'm hoping part two is going to be a little bit better. Part one had its good parts. The effects were fantastic, but overall, there wasn't really much substance to it. Number eight, Ex Machina. Number seven, a fantastic film that I recommend to anybody who hasn't seen it, Kingsman. The Secret Service. If you have not seen Kingsman, I highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, I I read somewhere uh, when they were mentioning Spectre not being on this list, they said, even though Spectre deserves to be on this list, I don't think it should be higher than Kingsman. So if you haven't seen it, recommend it. Number six, Alfonso Gomez Rejon from Laredo, Texas. Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Congratulations to... uh to our uh, uh, fellow Laredoan uh, for being on the top six of the uh, top 10 movies of 2015 as tabulated from uh, user ratings on IMDb. Huge props on that one. Number five, Sicario, which I also heard great things about. Number four, Straight out of Compton. Now you're talking about some quality movies here in the top six. Oh, top seven, really. And at number three, The Martian, doing well, like we just mentioned. Number two, Mad Max Fury Road. What a film. Considering the director is at the advanced age, what, in his 70s or he's 70 like that? 
fantastic. I really liked it. My wife, not a big fan of it. I really enjoyed it. The action scenes were fantastic. I, I, I just, it's a good movie. If you haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, check it out, especially if you like action films. And of course, the number one movie of 2015, according to this list, Inside Out. Interesting thing about Inside Out, there's no villain. It's all inside a little girl's head, so... If you haven't seen that one, definitely check it out. Switching gears to some music news. Here we go. From Blabbermouth.net, a new report claims that the reunion of Guns N' Roses' classic lineup won't happen for another two years. Rumors about a reunion of the classic Guns lineup have been heating up ever since the summer, when guitarist Slash revealed that he and Axl Rose had repaired their relationship after nearly 20 years of estrangement. Now a report on the UK's loaded site claims that the Megabucks offers have already come in for the band to play two British festivals at Isle of Wight and download as part of a comeback tour. According to the site, part of the reason the GNR reunion won't happen until 2017 is to allow Rose and Slash time to complete all of their existing commitments. The report claims that Rose will regroup several of the musicians from the most recent version of GNR in 2016 to play more gigs as a way of showing some loyalty to his current bandmates. Rose is the only original member of Guns N' Roses still in the current lineup, reminds me of another band, which has toured intermittently since 2006 and played its second Las Vegas residency last year. The closest anyone came to a Guns reunion in recent memory was when the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. Three original members of the band, including Slash, Duff McKagan, and drummer Steven Adler showed up, but Axel and guitarist Izzy Stradlin were no-shows. That kind of sucked. At the time, Slash said in several interviews that the Hall of Fame ceremony gave him a sense of closure. Guns N' Roses, however, recently parted ways with guitarist DJ Ashba and Ron Bumblefoot Thal. So be on the lookout for GNR in 2017. From MetalInjection.net, after the passing of Slayer's Jeff Hanneman, his widow, Catherine, put up four of Jeff's guitars for auction. All the money was going to the Wounded Warriors Project, and the asking price for each guitar was $12,000. Sounds like a lot, right? Well, apparently not for Broken Hope guitarist Jeremy Wagner. Blabbermouth reports that Wagner bought all four guitars for an undisclosed price. Dude seemed genuinely excited about owning the guitars and plans to use them on the upcoming Broken Hope record. Riffs are just flowing out of me, he said in an exclusive interview with Guitar World. I feel a real responsibility to Jeff and to Catherine to use these guitars in a way that honors him. As long as I own these guitars, I will use them and carry on Jeff Hanneman's legacy. He remains a huge influence to me and I probably wouldn't be here as an extreme metal guitarist slash lyricist without him. Good for him. Seriously, at least these guitars are getting put back into the musical battlefield and not just sitting on someone's wall collecting dust. Maybe the new Broken Hope record will feature some extra shred as well. You never know. The spirit of Jeff lives on. And last but not least, to close it out, one final story from Metal Injection. Metallica's foray into cinema, the 2013 film Through the Never, was an uncontested box office bomb, both in the U.S. and overseas. The movie, which uh, was given a favorable review on Metal Injection, cost over $18 million to make, only pulled in $3.5 million in the States and an additional $7 million overseas, so it didn't even cover its production costs, not even taking into account promotion and advertising. Last year, Kirk Hammett and Lars Ulrich were quoted with reactions as to why the movie failed, but in a recent issue of Metallica's fan newsletter, So What?, James Hetfield spoke for the first time about the commercial failure of the movie. He concedes the biggest critique about the movie. Nobody knew exactly what it was. It's very bittersweet, the whole movie bit. We put a lot of money, time, and effort into it, and how awesome we thought it was, and how, wow, this is pretty unique, we felt about it. At the end of the day, was its downfall. It was not so much a concert film, not so much an action drama. It was somewhere in the middle. 
It just fell right down the crevasse. It disappeared. And it was sad to see that. Now, the concert footage in the film is the best concert film you will ever see. It really, really is good. However, they kept cutting away from it to a narrative that honestly made no sense and few people wanted to see. Hetfield then went on to blame the lackluster reviews and lack of availability of the movie to its downfall. The way life is right now in the entertainment field, especially movies, two years of work came all the way up to a Friday night. Okay, the movie's released. By Friday night, you know pretty much what the full picture is and how the movie's actually going to do at the box office. But management said, and I agree with this, it makes total sense, that Hollywood is about perception. Hollywood is about rumors spreading and things like that. So if someone tweets, hey, the movie's great, and if that spreads, then it helps. A lot of people don't go to movies because of reviews, I guess. I don't understand that so much. I'll say to my wife, hey, let's go see this. It looks really good. And she'll say, well, it got bad reviews. We're not going. It's like, I don't care. It looks good to me. Let's go. Let me go find out if I like it or not. A review's just another opinion. But anyway, I guess across the board, it lasted in theaters, what, two weeks? I'd tell people, hey, we've got this movie out. And they say, cool. I can't do it this week. Maybe I'll go next week. Well, it's not going to be around next week. The movie got a 78% score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is actually pretty good and much higher than most movies get. So I don't think reviews were the problem. The problem was nobody communicated well what the movie actually was. Was it a concert? Was it a narrative? Nobody knew. At the time of its release, Metal Injection had a booth at Comic-Con and they were blaring Metallica exclusively. Countless people came up and asked if they'd heard about the movie and uh, that Metallica was making, asked uh, what, what was it about, when was it going to be released. Problem was, the movie was already released, meaning marketing people didn't do their jobs. Uh, also, and it was pointed out previously, the movie was initially released only in IMAX theaters. And in most theaters, they only have one or two IMAX screens. Two weeks after the release of Through the Never, Gravity was released, which was a blockbuster film and one of the highest grossing films of the year. Essentially shutting down Through the Never from any IMAX screens for the rest of the year. Since why would any theater promoter avoid going with a sure thing like Gravity? Hetfield eventually concedes that maybe movie making isn't their thing, he said. It's like, wait a minute. We go to these screenings and all the people are there and were they there to see the movie? Yeah. Would they be there if we weren't going to show up? I don't know. It's not our forte. As simple as that. We make good music. We like touring. We like performing. And it didn't translate into theater as well. Well, at least the band learned something, right? And it only cost them $18 million. For what it's worth, I saw the movie. I'm, I was pretty much... As confused as Hetfield is talking about, the concert footage, like was mentioned in the story, was really, really good. High quality stuff. Great performances by the band. The narrative, which uh, featured the guy who played the Green Goblin or Hobgoblin or whatever in the latest couple of Spider-Man movies, was kind of disjointed. He's running through an abandoned city. There's fire. There's people fighting. There's people chasing him. It, it was just very, um, I don't know, I, I, it just didn't have a point. It looked cool. I guess in, in some parts, it had some really cool parts. It kind of reminded me of um, The Purge or something like that. But the ending to it was kind of random. So it had its issues as a narrative type movie in and of itself. So yeah, it didn't really make sense. That'll do it for episode number 14 of the Small Hours Podcast. Flying solo this week. Hopefully next week we'll get Brother Joe back in here and into or onto the other mic. So don't forget to join us online at thesmallhours.podbean.com and stop by and like our page at facebook.com slash thesmallhourspodcast. We'd appreciate your like on that one as well. It's a page where you share a lot of entertainment news, music news, even some uh, interesting tidbits. So join us on there the next time you go on Facebook, which I know you do. If you're a band that's looking to be featured on the Small Hours Podcast on a future episode, drop me an email, smallhoursemail at gmail.com. That's smallhoursemail at gmail.com. That'll do it for episode number 14. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week, God willing, with episode number 15. You've been listening to the Small Hours Podcast with Al Guevara. I'm Al Guevara. We'll catch you next time.